This is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And this is episode 39 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, In the Shadow of Zahadum. We can finally say shadows! <laughs> we can finally say shadows! Oh my god, it has been so hard for months now, ever since our spider crab, crappity crab ships have shown up to remember not to call them shadows. And I think we've had, what, three or four edits, at least? Uh, a couple. The, yeah. A, a couple. <laughs> oh and, 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 and we know that shadows was sort of part of the nomenclature that was being used online even before they were called that in the episode that JMS referred to them as shadows or shadow men or something like that. But every time, you know, we're in the back of my head, I'm always thinking about Erica's husband (laughs) who has been calling them the space mob because he does not know to call them the shadows. (laughs) Yep. I don't think he's going to stop calling them Space Mob. Certainly, certainly, uh, Mr. Morden will always be Space Mob to Steven. Yes. I mean, that fits. <clears throat> when he appeared in this episode, it was just that he pointing at the screen accusatorily, Space Mob, Space Mob, Space Mob, you know, shouting. <laughs> it was great. I believe it. But yes, it's it has been a chore for for those of for because we are trying so hard to uh, be fair to our new viewers, people who have not seen the show before, um, that to um, to not call these things by their proper name, even though we've had the season, of course, is called The Coming of Shadows. And we've had a couple of titles here and there with shadow in them, but haven't wanted to confirm until we finally have confirmation. Yep. We call oh. them shadows. We have no other name for them, except for Space Mop. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's not a spoiler to say that Delenn will never say the words Space Mob, but man, <laughs> if only Mira Furley. Maybe we need to go back in there and do some creative editing. There you go. <laughs> Fan vid. Um, any other thoughts before we jump into our usual uh, recap and what you need to know. Damn the torpedoes. Full speed ahead. Yeah, I'm just excited to get going. Fair enough. If this is your first episode of Babylon 5 ever... Boy, did you tune in for a good one. <laughs> uh, indeed. Your timing is <laughs> incredible. Um, but what you need to know, Babylon 5 used to be a United Nations in space. Now it's neutral territory because the Narn and the Centauri are at war. The Narn are getting their collective butts kicked, mainly because the Centauri have some very substantial but secretive help. And in this episode, Captain Sheridan learns of our space mob because its public face, Mr. Morden, was part of the crew of a ship called the Icarus. The ship was a science vessel that exploded during a preliminary exploration of a planet called Zahadum about three years ago. Supposedly, all aboard were killed, including Sheridan's wife, Anna. Sheridan's quest to pry the truth of what happened from Morden has the rest of the crew on edge and protesting, up to Garibaldi resigning rather than being party to his captain's extremely dodgy actions. Sheridan is desperate enough to manipulate a meeting in passing between Morden and the station's telepath, Talia Winters, who gets a major scare from him. Even the ambassadors get in on the act. The Centauri extend diplomatic immunity to Morden and demand his release, while Delenn and Kosh reveal just how old Kosh's race is and the fact that Morden represents a hugely powerful opposition that must be stopped. Between their arguments and the evidence of his own eyes, 
Sheridan agrees to let Morden go, but only if Kosh trains him to combat this race called the Shadows. And EarthGov seems to have plenty of money to throw around, creating a brand new Ministry of Peace and offering steady bonuses to any Earth Force member who will join a faction called Nightwatch. And that is In the Shadow of Zaha Doom. Yeah, pretty inconsequential episode. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing nothing important at all. Um, so we've said here and there as we've been watching that, you know, this is an episode where it feels like the game has changed or everything has changed. Um, I kind of feel like we have yet again another game-changing episode. Um, do you guys agree or not? If so, what do you think? At this point, I'm not sure if it's necessarily changing the game all that much i feel like it's more revealing uh revealing more of the game like it even it, it just it felt like there was a lot happening um as, as steven put it after the episode was was over he said that you know this is one of those episodes where they're moving things around a lot like a chess game you know the throwaway episodes are kind of like mm, i'll just move this pawn back and that's it but in this one it's like they moved three different pieces which isn't even legal in chess so <laughs> yeah yeah i it, we got a huge exposition dump with some nice CGI uh, to go with it, but we have received just this massive dump of backstory here. And it's not just backstory, it's it explains a lot of the stuff that has been happening in the last year and a half of this television series. Why things have, have been happening. Mysteries have been removed, or, 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 or at least uh, uncovered a great deal. We now know who Morden is. We now know who he's working for. We now know who's been helping the Centauri out. We don't know all the why yet. But so much of early Babylon 5 depends on mystery and uh, just sort of working over in the back of your head what this stuff must mean. Every once in a while, you get a heck of a lot of answers, and that's what we got this time around. Yeah, not only answers, but Stephen was sort of flabbergasted at the end of the episode that Kosh wasn't even being cryptic. He just like came out and said, <laughs> if you go to Zaha Doom, you will die. Stephen was like, you'll die, dude. You don't want to go there, is what he was saying. You, and then Stephen finishes up with, you're going to die. That's what he was saying. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Somebody has to, oh, somebody has to Photoshop Jar Jar Binks into the Kosh suit. Oh, my God. <laughs> my Boy. brain is hurting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my heart. Yeah, um, I, I agree that yeah, this is um, definitely, and I guess the, the feeling of change is the fact that, you know, as you guys said, we have a huge amount of new information that we did not have before. Um, that, you know, a ton of things have been answered, and they're leading to a ton more questions. Um, which I think is, you know, just a, a gift that Straczynski has, that even when you think he's telling you everything, there's more to the story, and you've still got more to come and to anticipate, um, which is something I love about him. Uh, but, yeah, I agree. We get a whole lot, we get a whole lot of exposition, but we get it done. You know, again, JMS tends to be really good about weaving his exposition into his story. So it's not so much a character telling the audience all of this stuff in a rush he's filling in another character that would not be expected to know or the action itself um develops and gives us more of the exposition and that's something i really like about the episode i i love it i think it 
overall, the, um, the the story and what's revealed, I agree, is is revealed in a, in a nice way throughout the story. However, there is one scene that I have a niggle with, um, and that is the scene where Dr. Franklin is talking about... Um, um, all the patients he's lost and, you know, when he closes his mm-hmm. eyes and, and he starts out that scene, that the per- performance from, from Richard Biggs is really strong mm-hmm. and I quite like it. And then he hits this really labored clunky line that just derails everything mm-hmm. for me where he, he's, he's, it's a great scene until he says this damn war with the Centauri. Like that's, mm-hmm. that is not a line people actually say out loud. That is something you write in a story uh, and think in your head, but, but people don't really talk that way. It's just so cliche <laughs> yeah. that it kind of ruined the rest of that scene for me a little bit. And I think that, that from there, the rest of the, the lines were not quite as strong uh, just in that particular scene. And I feel like Richard Biggs was struggling a little bit to, uh, to, to make it work, but he still did a good job. And that's the only part of the episode that I had any trouble with the writing. Chip, did you have something? No, no. This wow. I I'm I, I'm preverbal. <laughs> okay. Well, something that occurred to me as we were watching, um, that the character of Sheridan that we've gotten across this season seems to be he, he's the type of guy who um, doesn't let things go necessarily. If something you know, intrigues him or grabs his interest, or if he needs to find it out, he tends to pursue it, oftentimes without asking for anybody's help. We've got the, you know, the idea of the conspiracy theories, he doesn't let let things go. I kind of felt like this particular situation was designed to take those characteristics to the extreme and show how those could turn Sheridan into a negative direction. Uh, What do you guys think about that? I I, I kind of agree. And it it helps overcome one of the possible weaknesses of this story it launches into motion thanks to coincidence coincidence that anna sheridan and morden were on the same ship Mm -hmm. coincidence that sheridan uh prompted somewhat uh by his uh, hallucination in the previous episode knives excuse me canivas um (laughs) and uh and and that's one reason why this or this airing order is so important coincidence that Sheridan happens to be going over manifest and some of that information while Garibaldi happens to be in there. Coincidence that Garibaldi happens to see Morton's face on that screen. You know, that bothered me slightly because I I asked Chip about this after we watched the episode. I don't think there's anywhere shown on screen why Garibaldi would know who Morton is other than we presume that Garibaldi knows everything because he's head security chief. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think that that's a safe presumption. I mean, um, Garibaldi would see, you know, 250,000 people. Yeah, but he's, you know, he's in a position where he's always looking at stuff. So anyway, all of these coincidences stack on top of each other. And yet we do have enough of a sense of Sheridan's character that Sheridan behaves exactly the way that you would expect him to. He will not let go. He is still devoted to his wife's memory, and he doesn't leave well enough alone. He's the kind of guy who walks stupidly by himself into down below just because <laughs> there's so, – so, of course, he's going to do this uh, to Morden, and that does make sense. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, as far as the coincidence things go goes with Garibaldi, I would also point out that not only is, is Mr. Morden, you know, somebody who's visited Babylon 5 multiple times, but he has been talking to the ambassadors. Like, mm-hmm. he's been hanging out with uh, with Londo and Veer, and I think that those are the kind of visitors that Garibaldi would probably keep tabs on the most, just to know what's going on. Yeah, I agree. I just, I kind of wished there'd been, like, a line or, or a brief scene somewhere in passing in, in the last year or so to to show that but that's me <laughs> um but yeah i do agree about uh, about sheridan i thought that this was this was sort of a a, a ramping up of, of like you said shannon all of the, the characteristics of of his and it, it it deepened his character a little bit for me and man oh man what a great performance from bruce bruce box leitner mm-hmm. i mean it was it, I, I remember watching it for the first time in a long time I think Chip. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is this one of the episodes that you and I watched for the um, the Babylon Five episode of The Incomparable? I believe it is. Yes, because it seemed very fresh and and familiar to me. <laughs> um, so, which is a good episode of The Incomparable. But if this is your first time through Babylon Five, don't go listen to that because there's spoilers everywhere. Um, wait until you're done, then listen. It's good. Uh, but but yeah, it. Uh, it surprised me when Sheridan just kind of immediately flew off the rails and was like, nope, we're, we're getting this guy no matter what. But I thought that it was uh, a, a good treatment of, of his character and the fact that, that he has been pressing down all of these emotions about his missing wife. And we've seen bits and pieces of that throughout throughout his his tenure on the show here. So it's not like it came out of left field. And now we're actually just getting to see the depth of the feeling that he has about that. And this is how it is manifesting. Um, it's just so impassioned and wonderful. And yeah, this is one of my favorite Sheridan episodes, I think, um, certainly thus far, because it's impressive. That initial interrogation scene, starting shoving with... the table at him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> shoving the table at him. I love that. And yes. then, and then Morden shoves it back, kind of. You know, mm-hmm. this thing starts with this thing starts with Morton saying, you know, nice shoes. Um, <laughs> and it ends with uh, Sheridan just screaming at him. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an angry Sheridan, but it is not a strong Sheridan. What do you guys think? Oh, yes. Yeah, you're that's... right. He He's playing he's he's trying to play hardball, you know, Morden is dead so he has no rights, but it doesn't really come off in the same way that some of the other Sheridan and previously Sinclair sort of, you know, loophole tricks have come off. This more it, there's a there's a whiff of desperation on here. And I think it's helped because one of the things that just struck me as you guys were talking is not just Box Leitner's performance and Sheridan, the exploration of his character, but the way the other characters, their different degrees of reaction to him, really mm-hmm. enrich this story. I mean, on the one hand, you've got Garibaldi, who, you know, yeah, he agrees and understands Sheridan's motivations, but he cannot go against regulation. And he winds up handing in his, his badge and his gun because he cannot support it. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, Franklin trying to talk him down a bit and they sort of kind of end in sort of this detente of neither one, you know, they've listened to the other, but neither one really quite agrees with the other side. And then Sheridan manages to talk Susan around to agreeing with him reluctantly, but she finally, you know, she finally, you know, nods her head and, you know, yeah, if I were in your position, I'd do the same thing. Um, I don't know how much of that is the fact that Sheridan and Susan have known each other for a lot, lot longer. I don't know 
you know, if this was Sinclair in Sheridan's place in a similar situation, if, you know, Garibaldi would be the one who supported Sinclair because they had the history. But the, the fact the different degrees of reaction really helped, um, really helped add detail and so much richness to the story. Yeah, it helps deepen the other characters, too. I think my take on it is that uh, that Garibaldi is really he's working to to play the straight and narrow just all along because he's had such troubles before. Mm. And this is sort of like, you know, his last chance. So he he doesn't want to screw things up. He's got a good thing going and Mm -hmm. he he doesn't really understand. I mean, he kind of understands, but it's 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 not worth his his position, Um, whereas I think you're right that with with Ivanova, the fact that they have a shared background and the fact that this is Ivanova. I mean, remember when she lost it, she beat up everybody in a bar. So uh, I think she kind of understands that that emotional place that he's coming from better than, say, somebody like Dr. Franklin. And I loved Dr. Franklin's point that their jobs are are actually kind of the the job descriptions are different, but but they deal with similar things when it comes Mm -hmm. to to this sort of thing, losing people and having to quiet that emotion because there are other things going on. So Dr. Franklin has had, you know, an adult lifetime of practicing handling emotions like this, whereas Sheridan, you know, maybe hasn't quite as much, um, or he has, and he just hasn't practiced enough because this has gotten to him. So I really liked the variety and all of those different reactions. It was great. Yeah. yeah. And to add another one, um, of course, Zach Allen, who, you know, Sheridan, mm-hmm. you know, Garibaldi leaves, Sheridan picks up Zach and sort of puts him, you know, not officially promoted, but he's in charge of this. And, you know, poor Zach is like, oh, it's the captain. Oh, it's the captain. I don't like this, but it's the captain. And um, I love Jeff Conaway's performance throughout, both in his reluctance, his nervousness, um, in the little tiny bit of B-plot uh, with the, the Night Watch thing um, towards the end. We'll, we'll get to that more later. But that was yet another you know, facet, another person uh, for Sheridan to bounce off against. Yeah, I, I, like, I like Zach a lot in this episode because he's capable and he's tough, but only in the sense of staying in his lane, as it were, <laughs> he doesn't mm-hmm. stand up to Sheridan. He follows the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Garibaldi is stronger and has a, a stronger sense of self. So it's like Zach has the authority of his badge. And in that, in that realm, he handles himself really well. He has a great conversation with the chief early on about uh, encouraging... Garibaldi to try to talk Sheridan into helping to get more Narns off the station. Um, and the confrontation with Morden. Perfectly. Great confrontation with Morden. There's not going to be a problem if you do what I say, you know, and <laughs> that that's that's great. Uh, but then one would think that Zach has a decent uh, understanding of the regulations, almost a, maybe even almost as good a sense as uh, Garibaldi does. He doesn't balk at Sheridan's actions. Yeah, Zach's more of a sort of laid back, you know, go along to get along guy um, a little bit, you know, not not terribly much, but as, as much as you could see in a, a security type fellow. Mm-hmm. And it may be just a level of experience. I mean, Zach has never been at Gary Baldy's level of authority. So like mm-hmm. you said, he still feels like he fits in the chain of command and that he needs to follow it. Mm-hmm. So, Anything else as far as sort of the, the big picture with with Sheridan and. And his situation. Is this a good time to talk about how awesome Ed Wasser is? 
Yes. <laughs> when is yeah. not a good time? Exactly. Any time's a good time for that. Here's what I love about Morden. And Ed Wasser does this great performance. Um, right from the beginning with, it, with the confrontation with Veer, all the way through to uh, the interrogation stuff, Ed Wasser is playing Morden as though Morden is holding all the cards and Morden knows it all the way. And we get a, we get a hint of why that may be when Delenn tells Sheridan, because Morden is never alone. Mm -hmm. And Ed Wasser acts as though he's got an invisible space mob all around him. He's got his bodyguards. He's got his people. One or two hints of frustration as Sheridan just keeps going at him and, and he's tangling his story. But overall, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Morden is smug even when Morden is starting to lose his footing. You know, he and and Ed Wasser is just perfect in this role. And this is his best performance yet. Yeah, even in his very first scene, well, not his very first scene, but the, the first scene with Zach when he's, you know, thinking, uh, what does he say? He says, oh, I don't think that'll be necessary and just tries to walk right past Zach as if as if he's got the force and can just, you know, <laughs> I'm not the person you're looking for, wave his hands and move on. But that doesn't work because so many people are standing there waiting for him. But mm-hmm. and then even after that, he, you know, he looks momentarily, he's not upset. He's just sort of like slightly discomfited, like, oh, I really have to deal with this. These mm-hmm. these peons. And he keeps that throughout the rest of the episode, no matter what's going on. And yet, Chip, your mention of of nice shoes, I'd forgotten about that. And that was just a perfect start to the whole interrogation piece, because Mm -hmm. he really never loses his cool. And he's just got that smarmy grin the whole time. And even uh, although I'd, he's got subtlety to, to his performance as well, because that that scene with Veer at the beginning mm-hmm. of the confrontation, there's it's not that he is he's he's a little confused by Veer because he just d- doesn't quite understand the fact that, you know, we're doing all these things for you, for your government and Veer mm-hmm. is not having it. And, and this is another reason that I am very happy to be watching this in the order that we are in the master list order, because I think Veer his his character development it, he came a little bit of a way in knives i feel right. like after seeing right. what this uh what the relationship with uh the space mob has cost londo um he's just ticked off at this point and if we hadn't seen that i feel like his reaction to to Morden would have maybe come a little bit more out of left field. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was still pretty shocking. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen was just like he goes under his breath. He's like, "Wow!" And then a couple <laughs> a couple seconds later, he goes after after Veer's done talking, Wait. he just goes V ear like two <laughs> syllables. It was great. And then uh-huh. when Veer waves as he's walking away, Stephen just giggled. Like, yeah, that's a good scene. Oh yeah, and and that go- and one of the things that I like about that is that neither Veer nor Morden back down during that confrontation mm-hmm. um morden gets a little pissed but morden also fully believes that morden is the alpha dog and you know you may go now veer and veer's more like yep. yeah don't want to be here anyway toodles yeah <laughs> and then and then morden is smiling a little bit to himself after veer after veer leaves you know morden does not respect veer Nope. Nope. Definitely not. 
It's interesting because Veer does, you know, holds his own in the confrontation with Morden. And then when he tries to confront Sheridan to get Morden's release, you know, he, he gets nothing done. He tries to give his spiel. Sheridan seizes on the fact that apparently the Centauri think Morden is uh, important enough to protect um, and blows him off. You know, and at that time, Veer definitely, you know, comes off, you know, he doesn't lose his dignity, but he definitely lost the confrontation. Yeah, he back. I like the way that Veer backs away from Sheridan, mm-hmm. feels a little threatened mm-hmm. by Sheridan, yeah. and yet stands his government's ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost seems like he is carrying over a little bit of the puffed upness that he had from from confronting Morden in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I did this. I've got my backbone going. And he he sort of sails into this meeting with Sheridan. And then the wind is taken out of his sails a little bit by the end of it. But yeah. but I, 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 I just feel like he's come a long way from his first days on the station. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're not exactly playing our little video game with uh, with Kodath <laughs> anymore, are we? No. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we we get uh, bits and pieces, of course, from a whole lot of the characters. This this is sort of like a touchstone for most of um, our main characters. Uh, Talia's back. Talia's <laughs> yeah, back, Stephen, and, and with Sheridan. the most amazing <clears throat> face slap in television history. <laughs> Stephen was actually the whole time that uh, that Morden was first in there and being interrogated. Um, this, Stephen was very excited by this episode. He was talking like just muttering through quite a bit of it. So so during those scenes, he just he was whispering, "Get the telepath, get the telepath, get the telepath." I had to shush him because he wouldn't stop saying it. So. Um, so at that point, then, then when Sheridan says, go get Talia Winters, see like both arms straight out with giant thumbs up at the screen. (laughs) (laughs) And then he was very disappointed when Talia was like, no, I can't do that. He's like, oh man. No, she won't do that. And that's, that's Garibaldi and Talia both. Following regulations. Yep. And not just following regulations, doing what's right. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're there. They are both opposed to. For, for, for various reasons, uh, Talia's had a lifetime of PSYCOR training behind her. Um, and But they both have this same conversation with Sheridan that is basically don't violate the spirit of the laws by just following the letters. It's not right to hold this guy. It is not right to scan this guy. doesn't matter what the government thinks or believes. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know that, that stuff that's showing my own political hand a little bit, um, you know, with with what's been happening in the last few years with the, the NSA and, uh, and other things mm-hmm. like that, it kind of is refreshing to see the, the top cop and the, uh, the commercial telepath both planting their flag on behalf of, you know, individual, individual rights. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even though character-wise, you know, people, it's... I, the episode's kind of designed to make you feel for Sheridan. You know, this is his wife. He's trying to find out what happened mm-hmm. to her. And yeah, it, it, it's really an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I, at the same time, I feel for him emotionally. Mm-hmm. I do. I don't necessarily feel for him as far as it's one of those those episodes where uh, I feel like the character that I like is making bad choices yeah, all exactly. along. So exactly. I never, I never want him to. I never really want him to succeed this way. But I understand why he's doing it, which is why I think it's such a brilliant piece of writing. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And uh, besides 
her sudden encounter with uh, with with Morden and and Morden's allies. Um, we can call them the shadows yes, now. Remember, we can call them. I know. Um, but then we also have the other bit that she appears in with um, you know yet more yet more sneaky stuff from EarthGov. You know, we've had, and that's another reason I think that the Master Guide works because was it. Uh, was it knives or was it a now for a word? One or the other that it was a now for a word where we get this yeah. big dump of ministry of this ministry of that um, mm-hmm. office of public morale kind of things. Yeah. And now we have the the ministry for truth. No, sorry. Ministry for peace. Ministry of peace. Ministry yeah. of mm-hmm. peace. And yet they Many don't seem like their goals office. are going to be very peaceful if they are looking to squelch. <laughs> Free speech or squelch troublemakers? They don't say that they're going to squelch free speech or troublemakers. Of they just want to help not. people. No, no, no. They say they say that they're they're not they're not the part that got me was they're not so worried about actions. They're more worried about attitudes. And I was like, red flag, red uh-huh. flag. We need to take them, embrace these people back into our society. I was like, embrace. Yes, I'm picturing like you know camps of some sort. And not the fun kind with marshmallows and s'mores. <sighs> Guys, Steven, I think you're just reading way too much into this. Maybe I JMS am. Stevens is taking t- taking <laughs> language straight from Orwell. I don't <laughs> think we're projecting that much. <laughs> Although perhaps Stevens' uh, assessment of this was was even worse uh, because when he first uh, the guy first got up on stage and was talking to this room full of people, Stevens like it's a timeshare. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so for the rest of the episode every time you referred to that guy you referred to him as timeshare guy <laughs> yeah and which I is worse was... the space mob or the timeshare i don't know you guys that's a tough one <laughs> yeah uh the yeah so timeshare played by uh alex hyde white who's a gentleman with a decades-long career as a character actor um he of course uh almost certainly came through to jms's notice with say it with me Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote. Um, mm-hmm. But he's uh, continued to act since then. He actually uh, is appearing on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this season as a Lord oh. something or other. I forget the exact name. But <laughs> he's had all kinds of bit parts in movies and television shows over the years. And, you know, he slid right into this pol- polit- political role. And I think he did a very good job with it. Yeah, I would. Well, I'm not going to say I would buy a timeshare for him, but I would believe that he's selling them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And then, of course, at the, at the end, money talks because um, Zach is willing to, you know, wear this little black armband for doing his own job. I, that was a point where, for the first time, Jeff Conaway's performance um, made me think of his character in the in Greece. Yep. The, the, the kind of the Bobby, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, if they're going to give me money, I'll take it. Uh, which I, which amused me. Yeah, it was bit. very it was very knicky, sort of like yeah. you know, look at me, I'm putting one over on him. Yeah, exactly. Do we want to pick apart Delenn and Kosh and uh, all of this all of this story that they give Sheridan? I the thing that I love about this is just that again I keep coming back to it continuity. I love that this show mm-hmm. um, you know sticks sticks with to its guns when it comes to the the main story, and we actually get a flashback scene um, of. Right. Of, of direct dialogue and stuff that was happening before and then we fill in some of the gaps of that scene because you know i always wonder what, what was the question that delenn had asked mm-hmm. of kosh you know trying to figure this out the whole time and i had forgotten of course because you know me so i was like oh yeah that was it yay now i know mm-hmm. i love getting that flashback to old delenn 
and seeing the contrast Mm -hmm. between them. Uh, It's just a little thing, but when Delin and Kosh look back at each other and they're like, okay, we're going to tell him, you know, Mm -hmm. come with me. The greatest nightmare of your life is coming. And Delin charges down the hallway and just sort of shimmies past Kosh. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something about the physical nature, because I don't think old Delin, who was full-blooded Minbari, a member of the Grey Council, with a whole lot of a personal sense of security and confidence and all this other stuff, Delin just charges down the hall. No decorum. I'm getting from point A to point B. This is a big deal. I'm just going to bulldoze right past Kosh. There's just something about the physicality of Mira Furlan's performance at this point where, you know, there is only one thing that matters. And it's not about me being Satai. It's about mm-hmm. getting this information to Sheridan and getting Morden out of that box. I notice her costume as well. Um, and I know that they've she's had sort of more, more flowy things, more colors, sort of softer costumes, mm-hmm. I think, since in the season since she made the change but this is the first time that it really just stood out to me very boldly that this was just a completely different kind of tailoring she just uh, she looks very different there's not the boxy corners to the Mm -hmm. outfits like she used to have so that's another another thing right in our face when we're seeing that uh the flashback we can see just another blatant difference right there Mm -hmm. yeah and i think this is again kind of like with um they're all they're all the honor lies where where there was a specific thing she was able to do and she was able to take charge and do it by leading everyone to um, the ship uh, that had captured Sheridan. This is another thing. This is not only something she can do. This is what she's supposed to do. I think that this, this she feels like this is her role, um, that if she's been planning for like three years now, trying to fight these shadow things, that that's another reason that she's feeling like she can take charge and move with authority because um, the the fight that it sounds like she's been planning for is uh, is arriving. And she defied the Grey Council. I mean, this is basically what she got kicked out um, kicked out of, uh, of the Grey Council for. Mm-hmm. And you know, so she, because she made this choice ahead of of when when she was told to, she she might as well, you know, she's taken this step, she's paid for it already, she might as well go barreling forward and and make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed that I really liked was how Dylan was so obviously trying to sort of communicate to Sheridan without coming out and saying it a couple of times when talking about these first ones and these old races, and she keeps sort of like jutting her chin towards Kosh. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, look, right there, right there. And then finally she has to come out and kind of say it. And that's when the light bulb comes on in Sheridan's head. And he's like, oh, boy. <laughs> and now and, and a big piece of the Kosh puzzle has been revealed. True. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously not everything. But between the fact that he and the Vorlons are the oldest surviving race, the last remaining first ones, as Delin puts it, and that and, and when Delin says that is why Kosh cannot be seen outside of his encounter suit, he would be recognized. And uh, Sheridan asks by whom, and Kosh says everyone okay so he was a little cryptic in this episode <laughs> yeah still uh, yeah yeah but th- that I mean, that he's kosh. yeah he's still kosh but but that adds a level to kosh and the vorlons that we didn't see before you know we knew before that the vorlons were old and powerful and that people who just flew into vorlon territory tended not to come back 
But now we see just how powerful they are. And I'm really curious as to what our control group thinks of Kosh and the Vorlons now. You know, I, I, I know that he was interested in the fact that Kosh got a lot less cryptic by the end of the episode. Um, but he didn't say anything in particular. So maybe I'll pick his brain about that. I don't know if he feels this way, but but I feel this way as a viewer that that yeah the the crypticness was I mean mostly I found it delightful, but at the same time I did find it a little bit annoying. Uh, but now that I know that he's of this race that's been around since like the beginning of the galaxy or whenever, I feel like maybe he's earned that. You know, <laughs> if, if a race that's been around that long really probably doesn't have all that much in common with races like ours that are are so brand new. So the fact that we can communicate with them at all, I think, is maybe kind of amazing when you think about that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I liked about that scene a lot is... Uh, um, continuity-wise, again, when Delenn is saying to Sheridan that that you know Jakar had to make a choice uh, right, between right. his his brace and himself and what he wanted, and now you need to make that same choice. And I thought that that was that was a really great speech. I mean, it wasn't one of the you know soapboxy type speeches, the mm-hmm. same as as we've seen from characters previously. But it was just it was a little one um, with just such a nice moment and a really important important way of laying it out for Sheridan. And I, th- I think that yeah. that worked very well. And I also like the fact that JMS chose to sort of echo it um, by having Sheridan ponder in front of Zach um, the story of World War II and Coventry. I poked around because I remember seeing arguments online here and there about whether that story was really true. Including uh, on our own, uh, in our own uh, spoiler, spoiler space threads. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um and um, the case is that, it, that there are history books that say this is true. There are other history books that say, no, this is not true. This is what happened instead. But the parallel helps, you know, lay out, you know, for anybody perhaps like people who haven't been watching as much and maybe didn't see Sheridan's speech to Jakar. Well, here, here's another parallel that, you know, draws on Earth history that, you know, maybe this will make sense for you. So I right. kind of And liked- I mean, when it comes to history, it's, it is often the the poetic and amazing stories like this that survive over hundreds of years of history, Mm -hmm. even if they are apocryphal. So I have no trouble believing that that is the accepted version of what happened at Coventry when Mm -hmm. we get to the year 2259. Mm -hmm. Can we think of anything else that we want to talk about at this time? I have one thing, but if you guys have anything first... Everything I want to say has to wait until we go through the (laughs) jump gate. I I will say uh, just a couple of... um, uh-huh. Uh, more structural things. The well, the lighting. I, I noticed that the lighting in this episode is some. That's something that I don't usually notice, but it was more shadowy in this. Right. There were especially in a couple of the different scenes with Sheridan where he is giving sort of impassioned speeches. The lighting on him I thought was very effective because there were some shadows kind of falling across his face just to show that he's sort of slipping into his own personal darkness in a way. Uh-huh. And uh, and um, Stephen also said that he thought that this was a well directed episode. He. He thought he recognized David J. Eagle's mm-hmm. name um, from possibly from directing other things, but he couldn't he couldn't didn't get a chance to look it up and wasn't sure. But he said it wasn't quite a Mar- Mike Vehar style episode, but it was still really good. OK, um, I agree about the lighting. I made a note of the fact that, um, as we have seen a couple times before, Morden's eyes being in shadow or, you know, Morden's face being shadowed compared mm-hmm. to the person he's speaking to. Um, but I, I was going to mention uh, David J. Eagle. This is the first episode of Babylon 5 he's directed, and he will go on to direct about a dozen more before the end of the show's run. Mm, nice. Yes. 
last call. Anything else before we go through a jump gate? Then, of course, uh, new listeners, this is where you should take off. um, But first, make note of your homework. Uh, Our next episode will be Confessions and Lamentations. Um, We will be talking about that in two weeks. As always, you are welcome to join us at our website, uh, b5audioguide.com, and participate in the threads, both spoiler and non-spoiler. So if you want to stay unspoiled, you will have safe spaces to talk about everything you've seen so far and speculate to your heart's content. You can also find us on Twitter and Tumblr, at b5audioguide. Please come and say hello, check us out. And with that, let's go through a jump gate. And we're back. Sigh <sighs> of relief. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Whew. Sinclair is Valen. Sinclair is Valen. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Wow. Oh, there is so much here. And so much here that is going to echo and resonate for all kinds of episodes down the road. This, this, this kicks off the, the very beginning of the giant war between the, the light and the dark. The Vorlons and the shadows and everything. <laughs> you guys, this was so hard to watch with Steven because oh. I was just so excited about all of these things that I yes. know when we get there, he is going to love so much. And there's so much time between now and then, like, you know, oh, Veer's yeah. having his confrontation with Morden and doing his little hand wiggle thing. And I just, I was just like, I like, keep a straight face, keep a straight, but don't keep too straight a face because you won't believe it if you're completely straight faced because that's a pretty cool <laughs> scene. So it was just, oh. But yeah, to, to, yeah, to have to wait all the way to into the fire for Veer mm-hmm. to wave at that at Morden's head on a pike, just like he <laughs> describes, just like no. he describes. And I really want to know how the heck uh, Londo found out about that. Yeah, to, to know to do that. <laughs> you know, this is one of those episodes where I feel like, and I say this periodically throughout the run, but I, I feel like Babylon Five really, really has begun. Um, the Shadow War. Mm-hmm. We know the stakes now. We know who the players are. We don't know yet that you know, ultimately the Vorlons are going to be just as bad as the Shadows. Right. Um, but the status quo is set now between all the way from here to the very beginning of season four. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, is, this is the Shadow War. Sheridan is now a combatant in the Shadow War. He doesn't know that he's about that he's just a few episodes away from taking shared command of the Rangers in this sector, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but he's got a real personal connection to it. He has just been entered into it um, by virtue of the fact that his wife was one of the um, people who woke up the shadows. You know, he's he's committed now. He's in this thing. I am so glad that it is Bruce Boxleitner and it is and, and it is uh, Captain Sheridan in this thing because as much as I love uh, Sinclair and as much as I respected Michael O'Hare's performance, this is so personal for Sheridan mm-hmm. um, that it, it just works for this character in a way that it would not have worked for Sinclair. And you see it right. You you see it. There is a through line. From this episode, all the way to Sheridan falling at Zahadum, to marrying Delin, to 
becoming the freaking president of the Interstellar Alliance. You know, mm-hmm. it's personal. And it would not have been personal for Sinclair. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, even though I know they were tr- the idea was to have um, Catherine Sakai be the one who um, came shadows. back from Zahadoom. Yeah. Was that am I remembering I, that correctly? I, I think still that, along I don't lines. think it mm-hmm, I don't think it would have been it would I don't think it would have worked on the same personal level that we get with Sheridan here simply because we have all of this development of Sinclair being this, you know, somewhat broken character who has, you know, he's built up a lot of walls and he he's gone through the fire already and um, is a little bit of a harder personality and I think more ready to make the, you know, the sacrifices and the tough choices, whereas Sheridan is still a little bit that wide-eyed puppy. And, you know, I, I think it's more effective for us to see him go through the fire as so to speak <laughs> yeah yeah and experience all that now i don't believe that it would have been exactly it would have worked out exactly the same way um, okay for example um the shadows were already active and kicking around um in season one while mm-hmm. Catherine sakai had never been to zaha doom true so it, i i think that something clearly would have happened to take sakai off the chessboard and to bring Sinclair and Delenn together and things like that. Um, it's, But it's hard to sort of imagine it having the same impact as uh, three years ago, your wife woke the shadows up. And now this guy who was connected to her is back and he's mm-hmm. bad. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it resonates a lot more. The fact that we've got the we were seeing um, Sinclair and Catherine. Um, you know, long history, yeah, but not fully committed until, you know, the point where he asked her to marry him at the end of season one. Here with Sheridan, Straczynski was able to um, create enough solid backstory of a happy marriage of, you know, a committed couple and, you know, tragedy strikes and she dies. That carries more weight uh, for Sheridan to go into this fight. Yep. And Chip, as you were saying about Talking about different episodes of Babylon 5 feeling more like Babylon 5 or, or getting more into gear. I do think that this one, it because it is such a giant piece of the Shadow War and giving us so much information about it. I mean, I do think that it does a disservice to Babylon 5 to to think about it as being the Shadow War. Because there is there is a lot more to it before the war gets started and after the war is over. Um, but I still can't help but that, that that is the first thing that I think of when I think about Babylon 5. Because yeah. it is the structure of, of so much of it and so mm-hmm. much of, of, of the best of it, I think. So the fact that this episode is such a pillar in the saga of the shadow war to me it really does feel like a an episode that you that you kind of shine a spotlight on you know i i i give kudos to jason for picking this for the incomparable episode where we only talked about four stories like Mm -hmm. this is a story that uh, it makes perfect sense to talk about if you're just going to to poke on a few yeah Mm -hmm. i mean the shadow war portion of babylon 5 is many people would say the best the, the best part of it you know it's certainly the meat of it but yeah if you look at that right if you look at the sort of right the rising dramatic action and all that stuff we have the shadow war and then we have the end of the earth war and then we have the setting up of the interstellar alliance and the sort of uh, politics and things that happen after that which 
I'm on board with all five years of the season of of, of the series. Um, I don't hate the way the the last season the way some other people did, but unquestionably, the Shadow War has so much momentum going for it, so much classic drama. This is uh, and and you know after the Shadow War things were a little rushed because they weren't sure that they were going to get a fifth season. I think that the Shadow War arc of Babylon Five is the truest to JMS's apparent original intention Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and has the pacing going for it. When I think of Babylon 5, I think of the Shadow War. You're right that it's sort of a disservice, Mm -hmm. but still. But you can't help it. There it is. (laughs) There it is. It is is executed so well. It is the main plot of the of the novel, quote unquote, that Babylon 5 is a novel for television, that this is the main plot thread. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one thing that I wanted to mention, though, um, that I couldn't before spoiler space. Day of the Dead notwithstanding, <laughs> this is the first of JMS's three and a half years straight of writing Babylon 5 episodes. And I can kind of tell that some of the things that annoy me the most about JMS's writing actually make their first appearance in this episode, it feels like. The awkwardness that you were talking about, Erica, in Mm -hmm. um, Franklin's dialogue. It's fascinating exposition, but it is exposition um, of of Delenn and Kosh explaining the plot to Sheridan. You know, I feel a little bit of the pawns being put into place by a writer who recognizes that it's up to him now to make the whole season, the whole series mm-hmm. work. Pull it off. And he, I do I, I do feel the hand of the author. Yeah. Did he know that he was going to be writing all of them? Was that a plan or is that something that just sort of happened as it went? My understanding is that uh, he made the decision early on that he was going to have to write every episode of season three. Ah. And I think after that point... He just couldn't let it go, mm-hmm. especially given the fact that he realized that he might be able to bring the whole series to a conclusion in season four rather than season five. But so he had to he give him because right. he it, just in case they didn't get the fifth season back picked up, because remember that the, the syndicated network that was producing Babylon five in the end, Babylon five was the last show standing. So. No matter how good a job he did and how well they did in the ratings, if if they didn't if they didn't weren't saved by TNT in the end for the mm-hmm. fifth season, um, this was going to be it. So season three by design, JMS writes beginning to end, and then he can't let go. Mm-hmm. And some of the strain of doing that clearly comes across. And I think you actually see a little bit of that in this very episode. Maybe a little, but there's still so many things that made me so happy about this episode. You know, we talked about, you know, the the Shadow War, and this is the beginning of the Shadow War. Um, There's also, like, the first hints of several other things that happen. Um, There's the the line about the fact that Kosh will be recognized if he leaves his encounter suit. Mm -hmm. We get to the fall of night. He leaves the encounter suit in order to rescue Sheridan and keep him from getting killed. And we see that he apparently, Vorlons are, you know, have been visiting planets for centuries, pretending to be whatever and whatever version of angels that culture has. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and that that and that is the most importance for their that they are seen to be as the good guys that they <laughs> represent themselves as beings of light. Right. Um, and not even necessarily that they, they are pretending to be angels, right. that they have just been visiting these these planets all along. And, and the mythology of each planet, uh, you know, mm-hmm. becomes has, you know, an right. angel or some sort of a, you know, figure like that, that are, that's a winged figure, simply because that's what the Vorlons look like. Yeah, the, the, these winged beings of light that, you know, mm-hmm. everyone who sees Kosh, you know, r- recognizes Kosh as, you know, uh, as uh Jaquan or Jalan, I forget what Jaquan and um, the Drazi name their their being of light and poor Joshala, Lando. Jalan. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and poor Lando just looks Why up. Do it's I like, remember these? I didn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, you know, representing um, just how long the Vorlons have been working to to establish themselves. Uh, we have the Night Watch now. And it's going to take mm-hmm. a while, but finally come point of no return. And Zach comes to his senses and <laughs> helps Sheridan uh, corral all of these Night Watch people to prevent them trying to take over the station. And I'm so looking forward to that that series, that three arc <laughs> series, uh, when we get there. Um, yeah, I I I, um, I admit I started getting sort of um, Erica's uh, patented spoiler queasiness. I started feeling like you two were just giving away a little too much during the during the pre spoiler <laughs> thing about how slimy and dangerous Nightwatch is because there there's I think the this episode is designed to make you feel wary about what they're doing mm-hmm. because Pierce McAfee is just so you know. So clearly, you know, mm-hmm. silver-tongued uh, well, devil. I think, I think with between and a, now for a word and this, I think the impression is is fairly clear that you know EarthGov's isolationism is taking a dark turn. I mean, if you feel you want to edit, you can. But. I'm, oh, I'm not. T- I'm totally not editing because okay. that would be work. But uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a very slow burn. I agree that you know Nightwatch seems to be okay, and it takes you know what a, over half a season of season. Um, for. It's going to be it's going to be almost a full year. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be until mid season three when um, Nightwatch tries to take over the station. Mm-hmm. I think if they if they would have maybe cast somebody different and used slightly you know different language, uh, I, I probably would have been a little bit more chill about describing it. But it just it it did seem like it hit me over the head a little bit. I mean, Stephen's comment about it being a timeshare right mm-hmm. off the bat, I was like, okay, clearly this is coming across to even somebody who's coming in cold that these are not not good people. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that uh, rang bells for me, of course, is uh, for the first time, you know, Stephen mentions to Susan that he's using stems to mm-hmm. keep himself up oh, for yeah. 36 hours straight, trying to keep up with everything that's going on, you know, and Susan, you know, at this time is, you know, forceful enough to say no sleep, six hours, food, you know, I'm not going to let you go back to, to duty until after that. And I was trying to figure out, so, you know, at this point, Susan's on top of it. And I was trying to remember at what point everybody is apparently gets so distracted that, you know, Stephen is able to... Um, you know, get back on stems. Um, and then, of course, they take him to a point that he almost destroys his career. He's almost making uh, life-threatening decisions uh, over his patients because he's lost it so much in trying to help everybody. Yeah. Not only that, but uh, this time around, you know, she makes him go to bed. Mm-hmm. She makes him get a good, a good meal. And he gets the message this mm-hmm. time. Right. And he's the one who tells Sheridan that you can't do it all. Right. And later on, mm-hmm. it's going to be him refusing to hear that message from exactly. Garibaldi. Exactly, yeah, how it turns. Uh, 
but uh, but yeah, it's really interesting watching Franklin be a grown up in this episode and f- failing to accomplish that later on. Right. Mm-hmm. Which we really, have- I think it does an excellent job of showing, you know, what the decline into addiction can really do to you. It it, it very much changes the way that you think about things and the way that you see the world. So I, I like that we have an episode here where it's it's so clear that he understands it and he's still at the top of that slide. And then when we see him down later, it's 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 character growth. I mean, or ungrowth. I don't know if you want to put it that Movement, way, but it's, it's certainly. A, Another thing that Babylon 5 excels at is that these characters make choices and and their choices and and their actions have consequences and repercussions later on in the show. Exactly. Um, I also liked, I think this was the first mention of the foundationists, um, the Stevens belief system that I think is one of the reasons he chooses to do the walkabout. Like, if I remember correctly, that's sort of Mm -hmm. tied into his religious beliefs that this walkabout uh, will help clear him, set him straight um, and get him, help him find himself again. Yeah, that does ring a bell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And I mentioned pre-spoiler territory about uh, David Eagle, uh, our director. Um, I mentioned, you know, he's going to do a dozen more episodes. What I didn't mention is he's going to do some pretty darn pivotal ones. Uh, He is going to be directing Dust to Dust, Severed Dreams, Hour of the Wolf, uh, The Very Long Night of Londo Malari. There's just so many big episodes that um, he's going to be at the helm for. Ooh. Yeah. I'm going to wave like this. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I just love it so much. Like, I just wanted to stand up and cheer. Yeah. And then he does I get have to, to be, do that. Yeah. I have to be so patient. So patient. Yes. And, of course, one last thing that just hit me, of course, yet again, uh, JMS's gift of telling people exactly what's going to happen, but having no idea the how it will happen. At the end of this episode, mm-hmm. we've got... Sheridan saying, you know, I want you to teach me how to fight these shadows. And Kosh, you know, I'm going to go to Zahadum. I'm going I'm to find out what happened to Anna. And Kosh is like, if you go to Zahadum, you'll die. And Sheridan's like, well, yeah, if I die, I'll take a heck of a lot of them with me and I'll go down fighting. You know, that sounds like sort of threats, warnings. And then, you know, in the face of those threats, uh, bravado. But you know, it's exactly what happens. Sheridan goes to Zahadum in order to escape um, the thing that Anna has become and the uh, and the shadows around her. Um, you know, he jumps and takes a white star down, blows up this huge um, area, takes a whole lot of shadows with him. Um, and As then, promised. And yeah. then he winds up essentially, quote unquote, dying and being brought back by Lorian. And also the different readings of if you go to Zahadum, you will die. Mm -hmm. Um, If you just take it at face value in this episode, it's 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 a warning. Then in interludes and examinations, when Sheridan finally has it out with Kosh, you said, if I go to Zahadum, I'll die. And Kosh says, yes, now Sheridan says, Mm -hmm. Sheridan says, well, if you're not going to protect me, then I'll, I'll 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 go by myself if I have to. And Kosh says, "You do not understand." Even now, when Kosh says, "If you go to Zahadum, you will die," that's concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have no indication that it is concern now, but when we look back on it, mm-hmm. yes, Kosh is concerned about Sheridan. Yep. This is so damn good. Yes, it really is. It is very much so. Can we think of anything else we want to touch on? Oh, the the one other thing that Stephen brought up 
that I just kind of was giggling at uh, listening to him talk is when uh, so Talia comes on and then mm-hmm. you know she she says no I'm not going to do this or whatever he just goes no 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 it was it was even in the uh, the opening credits when she comes up uh-huh. on the credits <laughs> Stephen just goes one day telepath <laughs> one day and then next Kaffer comes up and he goes and you too co-pilot and yeah. I was just laughing in my head going yeah like the way that Stephen the way that he said it was just like one day you'll get yours and I was just like they will they both yeah, will not too far not too long from now yeah that was mm-hmm. something that that struck me when um, Timeshare, you know, first talks to Talia and says, you know, that she's apparently got like this really good reputation back home from her supervisors or whatever. And I'm like, OK, hey, how's how's how they manage mm-hmm. that? Because she's you know, she's not always towed the line for them. He um, may have just been buttering her up. He possibly. just struck me as the kind of guy who would say that. Possibly. And then, of course, we get the first hint of, you know, the telepath, the fact that she can see you know, and feel the shadows next to Morden. Um, that's the first hint of the fact that telepaths are um, the shadow's biggest weakness. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that you know they are able to block the the space mo- the the space crabs, and they're they're able to affect uh, things so profoundly um, that and the reason why uh, the Vorlons took the trouble to try and plant telepaths among all of these younger races, as we find out. You know, and then, of course, a thousand years ago, when they were last fighting, uh, the Narn homeworld was a home base, and the Shadows took care to eliminate all the telepaths, which is why, back in the gathering, Jakar was like, hey, Lita, you know, we'd really, we'd really like some help getting some telepaths back. Can you, can you, can Let's you birth make. us a few? So, um, so, like you said, continuity. Continuity yep. going back, continuity going forth. It is, it is so wonderful. It's awesome. It's so wonderful the way it all hangs together. Are we done? <laughs> We're done. We're, this, this is such an exciting, energizing, um, happy-making, positive episode. I can't wait for next w- time. Oh, God. Cheapers, <laughs> oh, creepers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, confessions and Lamentations. Yep. That is hundreds of dead Marcab on the wall. Hundreds of dead Marcab on. Uh, <laughs> oh man! With our good friend, Mister Sunshine and Happiness, Jason Snell, <laughs> joining us for this one because he just can't stay away from depressing, carnage-filled episodes of Babylon Five. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So yes, um, thank you as always, um, those of you who are listening to all of us who know what's coming or are choosing to ignore our spoiler warnings and listening <laughs> to it all anyway. Uh, Confessions and Lamentations is our next episode. We look forward to talking about this episode with you um, as we uh, continue watching Babylon 5. We're actually fairly close to the end of season two, guys. There's only like, Holy cow. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. only a few episodes left before we hit season three. Goodness, how time flies. Um, again, please uh, feel free to come join the conversation uh, at b5audioguide.com, our website, on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And until next time, this is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>